Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Colin Hilton, who played a major role in the organization of the Games and continues to play a really crucial role in the Olympic movement here in Utah. And I'm so happy to have Colin here on board with us today. Colin, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Good to be here, Christian. Well, super happy to have you. But before we get into everything, I noticed a little scrape on your arm. <laughs> that's uh, that's a little bit of a mountain biking accident. Uh, you know, during these COVID-19 times, you know, I'm out of the house and I've got three boys, uh, varying degrees of uh, mountain biking capabilities. And the one I happen to be riding with, uh, I'll just say we had a little accident. Well, is everyone okay? You okay? Your boys okay? I'm okay. This is just, you know, the marks of uh, a good Utah being outdoors in these wonderful mountains that we have. They are wonderful mountains. And we'll talk about those uh, throughout this conversation, I'm sure. But before we get to that, why don't you tell everyone what you're doing these days? So um, running the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation, to me, uh, as I joke with uh, many folks like yourself, Christian, I feel like the last slot guy standing still. Uh, but for an important role of ensuring the legacy of our 2002 games in a, in a meaningful and really uh, uh, impactful way here in Utah. Well, the legacy, um, we're going to get into this, I'm sure, more in the conversation, but the legacy is one of the most outstanding legacies, I think, in the history of the games. Uh, when you look at Salt Lake, the, the record here is stellar, not just the legacy of infrastructure, but also the, the human legacy as well. And we'll get into that a, a little bit later. But before we do, where are you joining from? It looks like you're in an office. I am downtown uh, Salt Lake City at the Ray Quinney Nebaker Law Offices. Those are our outside legal firm that, as folks might remember, were a lot in part our legal team members. So Justin Toth, who is uh, was one of our key legal team members during the games, um, I've I had to be in their office uh, today, and uh, so I'm joining you from downtown Salt Lake. All right. Well, we'll try to not do anything illegal, so we're not busted <laughs> by Justin. All I'd good. hope to get Justin on here. It'd be nice to have him uh, come on and share his story as well. Now, before I hit the big red button and started recording, um, you mentioned that uh, you had just come out of a board meeting and looking at planning potentially another games here in Salt Lake City. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, it's a bit surreal, right, to be uh, talking about having another games coming back to Utah, but uh, I think the time's really right. Um, uh, was just um, down the street with a meeting uh, with Frazier and a number of other community leaders who are, we're in the midst of not just exploring uh, going for another games, but how exactly we would do that. So, um, um, you know, for me, uh, this uh, opportunity for Utah to host again, I think is uh, a great uh, symbol of, you know, what a great job everybody did, uh, for putting on the O2 games. Certainly legacy was one of those key pieces, uh, to our games. One of those pillars of the Olympic movement that I think really Salt Lake elevated in terms of stature of what's important for a community to be an Olympic and Paralympic city. And, um, you know, for me, it's uh, not a matter of if the games will come back to Utah. It's a matter of what year, and that will certainly be either 2030 or 34. And uh, uh, there's a lot of interest in the community to do it again. Well, there certainly has been interest from people who have participated on our podcast who more than one person has said, hey, let's get the band back together again, right? I'm curious about COVID. I'm, uh, COVID impacting those plans for the bid, and also have there been any impacts on the operation of the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation? Uh, I'll start with uh, our foundation and the three venues that the foundation looks after. So those, those um, hard to keep Olympic and Paralympic venues uh, after our games uh, are the ones that our foundation ensures uh, a continued operation. And that is Utah Olympic Oval here in Salt Lake, Utah Olympic Park up in Park City, and the Soldier Hollow Nordic Center in the Heber Valley. So those those three venues are typically the ones that are are hard to keep going after a games, and uh, 
because of the great effort of community visionaries back in the day, uh, you know, we created that surplus from the games to keep our foundation looking at uh, keeping that going. The COVID impacts right now uh, certainly uh, put a halt to athlete training and public uses of the facilities uh, for a period of time, but we got back up and running uh, about mid-May. And uh, so we're pretty uh, much normal operations for training athletes in all of our various winter sports. Uh, And again, strangely, summer is one of the busier training periods for winter sport athletes before they go out uh, on their winter competition circuits. Um, The public activities came in a little bit later and we're running about 50% of normal capacity uh, by design. Uh, But for a place like the Olympic Park, um, you know, normally this time of year, we're doing 2000 people a day that would come through uh, the Olympic Park in Park City. And we're about half that, which is still a pretty staggering number to me of anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people a day uh, getting outdoors and uh, engaging in one of these legacy venues and uh, uh, knock on wood so far so good. Uh, you know, with the proper protocols, we've uh, not had any uh, serious issues. I want to come to those protocols, particularly for the athletes. You've got high-performance athletes, as you mentioned, training um, what protocols are you putting in place to ensure their safety? Well, uh, it's a combination of efforts between the USOPC and our facility and the national governing bodies. Uh, we all have uh, worked very diligently together um, to uh, starting with our staff that operates the facilities. Um, everybody does a symptom check every morning uh, for uh, making sure nobody who is uh, sick or showing symptoms uh, comes to work. The, we also mandate wearing masks uh, for those that are working directly with others. Uh, they actually have gloves on, especially with the public interaction. Um, we do some crazy amounts of uh, sanitation between use sessions. Um, place like the freestyle pool, you know, it's got a it's uh, we are distancing the different ramps and having different groups on one half of the pool and another group on the other. Um, the actual sports medicine team uh, from like U.S. Ski and Snowboard, they've got enhanced protocols uh, that they are doing specifically with their athletes and what they are doing outside of training as well. And uh, between it all. Uh, you know, I've I've been heartened at as long as the protocols are followed, we have learned to live with COVID, and uh, uh, things are so far going well. Well, that's really wonderful to hear, and I hope that for the athletes' sake, that they will be able to actually compete this winter, that the competitions will go on, and um, that they'll be able to perform at the highest level. So, um, glad to hear that the training is going on, and it sounds like it's a overall uh, success. Yes. Well, and and one of the things I keep repeating to my staff um, is uh, what I've seen through this whole pandemic is what sounds good in one week, the next week doesn't sound like a good idea. And you might have to modify and revise your plans uh, for how you're operating. So uh, having a mindset of, uh, uh, knowing that change is inevitable and being adaptable uh, to modify to the conditions presented to you is one of those traits that obviously we all had as staff of the O2 games. And that is a mindset required in putting on big events or legacy operations for these Olympic facilities. That's a really interesting parallel now that you mentioned that I hadn't really thought of it, but you're right with COVID, we are in uncharted territory. And in planning for the games, to a certain extent, we felt like we were in charted territory as well. For many of us, it was our first games, not, not for, for all. So speaking of Salt Lake 2002, why don't we go back to that time period? We'll sure. take a little slice of the life of Colin Hilton here. And we'll start at the beginning or maybe even before the beginning. So Colin, why don't you tell us a bit about your journey to Salt Lake City? What were you doing before working for SLOC? And how did you find yourself 
as a part of the organizing committee. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, you know, for me, Salt Lake ended up being a sort of a, a culmination of a meandering uh, around the, <laughs> the United States for a number of international events that happened to be um, all condensed in a, you know, in a 12 or 14 year period. Uh, I was a part of the World University Games, uh, which were an Olympic style event for university age uh, students in my hometown of Buffalo, New York, upstate New York, hosted uh, the world, the summer World University Games in 1993. And I oversaw the soccer competition for that as a sport manager. And uh, the that was my first introduction to being a part of a major international event. And like all good stories, I started out as a volunteer uh, in for the organizing committee, offering one day of uh, service uh, to the organizing committee that eventually led to a job offer to actually be a part of that organizing committee. From there, having been a part of uh, running the soccer competition, the FIFA World Cup was happening in 1994. And I was uh, had the great opportunity to go to Boston uh, to be at one of the 12 uh, cities that hosted the FIFA World Cup. From there, um, you know, that's that's where I met Doug Arnott and Doug got hired down to Atlanta and brought a bunch of us that had worked on FIFA World Cup, uh, ran the rowing and canoe kayak uh, venue uh, at Lake Lanier in Atlanta for the 96 games. And uh, so I was I was a part of that traveling roadshow of going from uh, one major event to the other and uh, thought I was done after Atlanta. Uh, but when uh, Mitt Romney and uh, Frazier and Doug Arnott got hired on, uh, we kind of pulled the band together to come out to Salt Lake to do a winter version. And uh, and so glad I I uh, I did. Uh, because this here in Utah became uh, sort of my final stop on doing the major events. Uh, and through all of that, I I had always been concerned about the lack of uh, thinking of what you do after a major event with all the money that was spent. And with what Utah had done to plan a legacy of hosting the games, um, the fact that I've been able to to remain a part of a continuation um, is is a bit of a, a personal satisfaction because so much money goes into a three week competition, and in previous major events there wasn't a whole lot of thinking of what happened after that with use of the facility. So there's some good stories in Atlanta, but there's also some not so good in terms of where all the money that was spent on facilities, um, uh, you know, ended up not continuing a, a use. And Utah, uh, to me, uh, did a phenomenal job of trying to plan for what happens, not just for a three-week event, but how a legacy after a games happens. And to be able to run the foundation now that is making that vision a reality is um, very rewarding. Well, absolutely. I want to come back to that foundation, that Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation, once we get all through these games, because I yeah. do think it's really important and I want to give you plenty of opportunity to talk about it. But before we do, you mentioned that Doug brought you on after Atlanta. So what did he bring you on to do? What was your role here in uh, Salt Lake? Uh, so I became the director of Park City Summit County Operations. So I was... Uh, in part, the liaison from SLOC to Park City to Summit County and the venues and uh, official competition venues and the uh, non-competition venue of Main Street up in Park City, which obviously was, uh, if you will, one of those live sites that uh, was a beast upon itself. Uh, so having you know, Deer Valley, Park City Mountain Resort, Utah Olympic Park, and Main Street as a uh, a region that saw more than 50% of the overall competitions was one of those really interesting, complex planning uh, uh, opportunities. And so um, I came in early uh, after Doug came on and 
um, had a lot of fun working with the community who really wanted to be a part of the planning process. And I think that's one of the great things that SLOC did was engage um, those in the community in how the delivery of the games actually took place. Park City had had a history of kind of not being a part of the planning, and we really made a concerted effort of uh, making sure, and there was good people, uh, Miles Radiman, Frank Bell, uh, Toby Ross, all in the, the Park City, Summit County area, uh, really helped SLOC be a partnership in planning and executing these games. And so that was the role, and, and I love the community dynamic in all of these OCOGs that I had been a part of. Um, but this was special because of the, the collaboration that occurred and the purposeful um, involvement of the local governments, the local business leaders in making that happen. And, and I was made a lot of friends and still maintain a lot of friends in that uh, region. And uh, it uh, again just was a special time, but the focus for me during the games was uh, planning those venues in that cluster. Well, I want to talk a bit about that stakeholder involvement a little bit more. You mentioned that you had a lot of involvement with the communities there, and that can be a challenging thing, right? Because the communities have their own priorities and their own long-term development strategies and and then you've got games requirements that you've got to meet to make sure that the competitions will go on flawlessly. So how did you go about building that trust and creating that alignment of what you needed to deliver with the games and the community's um, own priorities and their long-term uh, development strategies? Uh, again, that is the passion I have. That is exactly... Um good communication. You have to um, be chatting with the community officials right from the outset and understanding what they're trying to get out of putting on the games. Uh, for the region of Park City and Summit County, you know, they had been uh, for years um, very much a winter sport city. They wanted to be more of a, a destination tourism location uh, the games were going to be a, uh, if you will, a coming out party, not just for Utah, but specifically for the region of uh, Park City in attracting more destination skiers. And uh, the games were a, a big uh, spotlight into how good the snow is here in Utah, right? The greatest snow on earth. And it, it was uh, important for the city to, to be showcasing itself as a destination uh, resort community. It was important to implement some uh, public transportation was becoming a, a key interest for the community. And they really wanted to involve themselves in shaping how Main Street and the community gathered in the heart of that historic, wonderful Main Street. And um, so, you know, involving them, hearing out their ideas, and being an advocate for them back to SLOC offices uh, became um, uh, a really genuine and purposeful process that uh, I earned their trust in the initial period and uh, became a great two-way avenue to, to make them a feel a part of putting it on. Were there any situations where you found yourself at odds <laughs> with the with the communities, a challenge that you had to overcome, and maybe a compromise that had to be made in order to deliver the event while at the same time making sure that the cities, uh, the local communities were on board? You know, I think a couple of idea or a couple of instances come across my mind. One was uh, representation of the local sheriff's office as a venue commander. You know, that was uh, obviously Secret Service became the lead uh, security planning entity. But uh, they, of course, had multi-jurisdictional involvement. And Summit County wanted to make sure they had uh, a representative from the sheriff's office that was the venue commander. And so, uh, you know, that 
was had its challenges uh, and the efforts of UOPSIC um, uh, had its added nuances, especially as we got closer to the games with the 9-11 impacts. But um, that turned out really well because we, we, we messaged and we figured out how to make that happen. Um, tr- you know, the, the, the other challenge became the contingency planning of having three venues of which we could only operate two at the same time. And if we had weather delays, how we were going to manage how to, uh, you know, move a weather delayed event into another day. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, that particular effort required us, uh, thinking through the transportation planning element for a region that normally, you know, only has Park City itself only has 7,000 residents and the, Western part of Summit County adds maybe another 10,000. And on a good day, we're essentially doubling the population of the town with a lot of influx of uh, spectators. And um, I, I honestly can't tell you that there was ever any major issues that we didn't resolve. Uh, and I think, again, that came from the partnership that was built early on. Um, you know, we had a planning commissioner that didn't want McDonald's having styrofoam cups, you know, used at the venue. So that was, you know, something that was a topic that we kind of work through and, uh, nothing of a huge variety, which to me was a testament that everything was planned well. Well, yeah. If styrofoam cups are your big issue <laughs> that you have to resolve, then things are going all right. Yep, exactly. Okay, well, we've talked about a lot about this partnership with the local communities and the various stakeholders, but let's talk about within the OCOG itself. You mentioned Doug brings you on uh, to fill this role. What was uh, what was the structure of your team, and um, how did that organization evolve over time? Uh, you know, the the venue operations, venue management team, uh, you know, was a a uh, uh, an evolving. Uh, venue team planning dynamic that Doug had sort of honed from world cup through Atlanta games and into salt Lake, uh, where it very much talked about how do we gel the functional areas at a venue level, you know, at the time and an early dynamics of an OCOG, you've got the various functional uh, areas of food and beverage, security, transportation, uh, sport, logistics, et cetera, the 26 functional areas that all eventually have to operate at a venue team level. And so, you know, Doug's process was to create a model venue team that in a model venue planning exercise that essentially, you know, used a sample venue that would work out how we apply these good ideas from a central office perspective and apply them on a venue team. And ultimately the venue manager became the the person to try to integrate all of those functions and gel an operating team that had to adapt those uh, template plans to a venue uh, environment. And so I took the cluster of the Park City area uh, uh, early on before we had individual venue GMs. Eventually, then we got uh, Chris Crowley and Donna Corrado uh, to be the specific venue managers. But in the early days, I, I had to do a bit of that initial planning and integrate the regional functional area managers into initial venue planning uh, procedures. And uh, so that, you know, the, the UOP became, if you will, one of those template outdoor venues to go along with a template indoor venue to how we get the team to actually all uh, gel together. And, um, you know, being a part of that process to explain uh, to uh, the various 
functional areas in the leadership team of Slock, uh, Frazier uh, became uh, extremely knowledgeable about the operating challenges. And, you know, we inherited some budgets and obviously went through the squeeze of the budgets. But we ended up having a a methodical approach to making adjustments to the operating plans that to me was one of the fun stories that I did want to get into to explain what I thought differentiated Slock from many other organizing committees. But I'll wait till you prompt me on that, Christian. Why not right now? Why don't we just dive right into those plans right now? So for me, one of the my favorite memories from the games were um, how we went through a necessary process of defining need to have versus nice to have. And that obviously Frazier and each of our functional areas and venue teams went through a very methodical approach to figure out a very lean operation. But inevitably, as you get within a year, year and a half out from the game starting, there's always things you find that it's not going to work and you need to make a a change that requires a budget adjustment. And so um, Frazier ran a weekly meeting called the COR meetings every Thursday morning. It was an opportunity for each of the event general managers um, and functional areas to come together Frazier and I think it was Brett Hopkins and uh, uh, somebody from the budget team would each of the the GMs had five minutes to basically be on, you know, the hot seat to say, this is a problem. This is what we uh, propose to make uh, a change in the budget to allow an improvement to occur that would make for an efficient operation. And, you know, you had to come in prepared, you know, the, the environment Fraser created in this setup uh, and obviously Doug and uh, Kathy from sport were, were key in those meetings as well, where um, you did your homework, you had less than three minutes to make your case answer a question and you were either approved or denied. So it made for a little competition amongst the different venue teams to, you know, who's going to, who's going to get approved or who's going to get denied. And that became a fun little competition amongst us of how articulate could you make in a very streamlined fashion, your argument on behalf of the team. And you were either approved or denied. And so we all of course kept track of, you know, what positive record rate you had and who was getting denied. And we would obviously make fun of everybody if they didn't get their funding. But what I appreciated about the process was it made you uh, only approach, you know, uh, a change in budget request if you had something you were passionate and your team really needed. And that really focused on this need to have versus nice to have mindset that that Frazier set into place. And, um, in the end, I, you know, we've hindsight's always 2020, but I remember having a conversation after the games with Doug and Frazier and Frazier was like, wow, I was really hard on you guys. And, you know, I'm sorry, I I didn't end up relinquishing more funds to make your life a little bit easier. But I, I, I said, I wouldn't change it for the world because that was exactly what we needed and it was a mindset that made everybody uh, really focus on what was absolutely needed versus um, something that was nice to have. And I'll always appreciate that that dynamic. And it was something not ever seen in other OCOGs. Well, I have to say, I'm listening to you telling me this story. And you use this phrase that this was a fun little competition. And it, I would say... in in a typical organization, that would not be fun, right? <laughs> like you have all of these people that are vying for limited funds and they're competing with each other to a certain extent to make sure that they can get the funds that they require in order to deliver their operation. But in the case of Salt Lake, it was actually viewed, maybe I'm looking at this through rose-colored glasses now, but from what you're telling me, this did not hurt the team dynamic. It actually helped it in some respects. And I'm curious how that is. You know. 
because in in other organizations that could cause a lot of hard feelings. It could cause fractured relationships. It didn't seem like that happened in Salt Lake. I wonder why that is. I think it's as simple as uh, Frazier and Doug provided an audience where you could go make a case. And in certain organizations, companies, wherever you're working, you know, most of the frustration employees have is if your voice can't be heard. So in this particular, you know, environment, um, the senior executive team made for a weekly opportunity to say, we have a problem, how can we change it? And I will give you time to explain your options uh, that are that you're uh, advocating for. And, and so just, just the fact that there was an audience and, and Frazier, Doug, Kathy, others, Grant, took the time to allow us to make a case for an improvement. And it can be that simple, but it starts with how do we, how do we rely on the knowledge of our team to be able to bubble up good ideas? And they made decisions on the spot. Yes. And it wasn't like, we'll come back and let you know in a week, a decision was done right then. So you didn't have to worry if you went first or last, if you thought, <laughs> oh, I'm going last here. Maybe he's approved everything he's going to approve and I'm not going to get my thing approved. There was a natural pecking order of those who were really confident went first and those who were a little less on their ideas, you know, sort of were at the back of the, the hour meeting. I know that you've got other things that you want to talk about. So I want to make sure we get to the items that you have on your list. What, what other stories do you have there before we get into all the legacy stuff, but just sure. talking about preparing and delivering the games themselves? Um, you know, uh, in thinking back, I, I do always kind of go back to this one story of um, how our team at Utah Olympic Park reacted to an unfortunate uh, situation that occurred. Um, and, and how we reacted to it. And, um, it involved, uh, a day where for a bobsled event on the sliding track, we were loading up to 15,000 people along the track and we were kind of into our routine, uh, uh, of running pretty smooth operations by day three or four. And, um, we, I get a call from our site manager, Rex, who said, uh, this is again, about 30 minutes before the start of a competition. Uh, my site manager, Rex says the big pedestrian bridge that crosses the lower loop of the sliding track is having bolts on this pedestrian bridge dropping into the sliding track. And there is some uncertainty about the stability of this pedestrian bridge and um, the impact of, you know, parts and pieces falling into the sliding track, which obviously was like, this is not a good situation. Um, so the, the, the interesting dynamic was because we had such a high spectator count, we were about five people deep along the sliding track. So people had learned to come early and reserve a spot right next to the track along the, uh, the barrier. And by the time I got over there with my staff, we um, had, a, had people five to eight people deep behind the fence underneath this deck of the pedestrian scaffold temporary walk, walking bridge. And we had the staff immediately jump in that basically these bolts had to all be tightened up. They had somehow the nuts on the scaffolding had gotten to the point where some of them were falling into the, into the sliding track. So we had a team jumping on doing that, but then we had this challenge where to get to it, we had to move all these people. And so about uh, three of us ended up taking a little pad of paper and taking names just like you would at a restaurant of you know, a seating chart of the people who had come two hours early to reserve that spot. So we, we sat there and generated a little seating map before we moved people away so that the, the, the crews could come in and fix 
the repair to the to the pedestrian bridge and then you know after 20 minutes of doing the fix right before the start of the race we then said you know smith party of five we need you up here to put you along and we got everybody was so happy and uh it could have been a lot worse uh you know people would have been mad about losing their spot but um, our event service team did an awesome job of sitting there determining how to move everybody right back in. So that, that to me was, um, some smart on the spot thinking and, uh, just one of the examples of how the team just came up with clever ways to address, uh, problems that inevitably comes up. Well, crisis averted, right? And, exactly. uh, nobody watching the event on NBC had a clue. No. Now, those are those little things that, you know, teams have to uh, take care of in order to keep to the competition schedule and the the TV schedule. Well, yes, everybody in the world would have known if a bolt had come falling down on a <laughs> on a loser as yes. uh, she's heading down the course. I mean, that could have been catastrophic. So I'm glad that you're able to resolve that. Just more some real quick, like never saw that coming. Um, I did get a call from our local law enforcement about some illegal um, ticket um, scalping going on at at our front gate uh, at the right in front of the magnetometers at the security checkpoint. And this very good um, colleague of mine in the local law enforcement in confidence said, could you have uh, this could you, I'm sure you know this person because they happen to be the daughter of a, a son or a daughter of a, um, one of your high ranking slock officials. And that would not be a, a good story to have. So, um, I made some quick calls and that family member, uh, very quickly moved, uh, um, on, uh, but that would have been, a not a great publicity story of, and I'll, I'll keep it a, just a high ranking slot member and not reveal who that was, but that was, uh, one of those interesting quick calls to have to address. Um, there was other times, uh, my sport manager for luge, uh, called to ask me to intervene in an issue where on the first days leading up to competition, we had the luge and uh, bobsled teams uh, coming in for training and as customary at all Olympics they bring gifts and typically they are gifts of you know spirits and uh, different varieties of um, booze from their respective countries that they give to the sliding track manager as a protocol and as you probably know Christian those things were uh, not allowed in the venues and uh, the MTA or vehicle checkpoints were a uh, point where everything was searched. And so it became one of those dilemmas of, you know, protocols were this. And so <laughs> I had to intervene and find a way that our security checkpoints understood that this was not for anything other than a protocol gift and, um, you know, Zianabeth uh, Shattuck Owen, who was my uh, luge manager, um, said this would have been a big problem if we weren't able to make this happen. And we were able to to make that happen and and keep the traditions alive, uh, even though we had some, uh, you know, necessary protocols that were trying to be followed. Well, you mentioned the Secret Service, right? I mean, everything got really tight after 9-11 and the security just got really clamped down on. So, I'm glad you were able to find a solution. Yes. And obviously it just goes towards having a conversation and a communication. And that's, you know, part of those teams were our public safety folks and secret service and all of the agencies involved. And I think that that is another key aspect of how I think the games in Salt Lake were so different than ones I had been a part of before, uh, where because the public uh, uh, safety entities were involved early on and UOPSIC or the Utah Olympic Public Safety Command uh, were able to um, be involved early. They felt a part of the team. And when 9-11 happened, yes, there was a, 
uh, uh, necessary increase in the amount of resources put into security. But it because we had this team uh, chemistry, it it just was an added thing to talk through. But there was a level of trust that occurred and a level of uh, interagency cooperation that became one of those great legacies of the O2 games that I have seen for the, the, the following 20 years. You know, everybody talks about the physical legacies and the sport legacies, but, you know, one of those interesting Utah legacies is the integration of the public safety entities around Utah and how they have um, been better off now to handle natural disasters or, um, you know, uh, accidents and other things that occur that involve multi-jurisdictional uh, integration. And so... To me, the I'm sure you've had Fraser and other members doing these podcasts talk about the impact of 9/11. Um, uh, a lot of out of something very tragic, a lot of good occurred as a result of how the team responded, and that to me is a testament to the good people that made this games uh, as successful as they have been. Well, you mentioned there the legacy of the security and the integration, and that's now your main focus in life. I mean, your professional life anyway, is the legacy of these games. So why don't we dive into that? Why don't we mm -hmm. talk about that legacy? Perhaps you can talk about the foundation that was laid even before the games happened. You know, you have this, this idea with, of, of having a legacy and then your own personal involvement with that legacy following the conclusion of the, the games and up until the present day. You know, the, 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 the early leaders in the Olympic bidding effort actually started uh, planting seeds for creating a legacy after the games by how they funded the original uh, legacy venues. They, you know, uh, rallied, business leaders, elected officials, and sport leaders in Utah to uh, put together a $59 million um, uh, fund that paid for getting the Utah Winter Sports Park, now named Utah Olympic Park, the Ogden Ice Sheet, and the Outdoor Speed Skating Oval in Kearns. Uh, the state of Utah paid that up front and started building in 1993 ahead of the O2 games as a way to attract the games to come, but also show a commitment to uh, the legacy. And uh, the little uh, unique to Utah element of that was if the games came, the organizing committee would have to pay back the 59 million and supply a minimum of a $40 million legacy fund to continue operating those legacy venues. And not only did Utah pay back that 59 million uh, uh, SLOC did to the state of Utah, but it also left a $76 million legacy endowment for the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation. And um, that vision of having a legacy organization was created in the early 90s, executed through the games. And again, uh, initial thinking was to at least go 20 years, 20 years, and we're basically approaching that point right now. And um, the legacy fund has had its gyrations of going you know, uh, um, having a roller coaster ride with the 0809 downturn, and obviously the latest uh, impacts with this uh, pandemic. Uh, but we're still sitting on a $50 million legacy fund that allows us to keep running these facilities. And, and we have not um, uh, gotten to a situation that we are going to be out of business next year, if anything. <laughs> My favorite statistic is we're four times busier today in use of our legacy venues compared to where we were just after the O2 games. 
I don't know of any location in the world that cannot uh, that could say that not only are we still open, but we're four times busier in use of the facilities between athlete training and public uses. So that that was a vision that um, early leaders had uh, for Utah. And I just am humbled uh, to be a part of the foundation that is continuing to make that uh, continue. Tell us a little bit about your own involvement in it. How did that come about? Did you know from the beginning that you were going to be a part of this post games or did it just happen spontaneously? I mean, how did you end up getting involved with the foundation? Um, after the games, I had made such uh, um, good relationships with those in Park City um, the city manager at the time had approached me before the games about, uh, coming, uh, to join the city government. So I, I did a stint as the economic development director for park city from 2002 through 2006 and without an intent to be a part of this legacy effort, but, it, um, I couldn't help. Um, I obviously knew uh, Mark and Kathy and John Benyon, who were running the foundation. And it's kind of one of the the, the funny reflections I have is because I kept saying, hey, you guys should be doing more. Like we worked really hard on creating this legacy fund. And I think there's more that can be done with a legacy of a games. And, um, you know, I, I was in part um, you know, pointing out the things that could be done. Uh, some would say I was complaining a little bit, but the, um, you know, what eventually happened was they're like, Oh, well, what are you doing, Colin? And so they being Frazier and John Benyon recruited me, uh, along with Gordon strong recruited me back to running this foundation because it, had so much potential that I was pointing out that, you know, what's the point of having the facilities open if people aren't using them? And we had good use. It just, you know, my threshold for what was good was a little bit more and um, had lost a little bit of a focus on sport legacy. And so we reinvigorated that. We focused on um, Utah's youth getting involved in winter sport and boosting the participation usage uh, for not only sport programs for but for public uses and um, it, things have just skyrocketed uh, since I took over the foundation on in 2006 uh, to where we are today we've added athlete housing we've added improved uh, 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 freestyle pool we have renovated and created a new airbag uh, setup, uh, the speed skating oval. We've added a $12 million building next to it. Uh, Soldier Hollow, we have a 20-year master plan that we're executing on. So our vision is not about just opening and keeping the facilities open. We have actually added to the infrastructure, and uh, we've got athletes coming from all over the world still training and competing here in Utah. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for uh, initial visions and the fact that there was a legacy fund that allowed us to to run this foundation. You mentioned the word vision there. So let's wrap up this legacy segment with that concept. So as you look towards the future, what do you see? What is the future of the foundation? Well, we have five core mission pillars. One is uh, maintaining and improving world-class training facilities running um, uh, dynamic, engaged sport programs, involving the general public in use of the facilities by offering unique Olympic-themed experiences, um, having resourceful management of our foundation, and creating thriving communities where our actions at these Olympic venues are complementing the visions of the community. Uh, Soldier Hollow only joined under our umbrella in 2015, and uh, Wasatch County in the Heber Valley is just growing leaps and bounds. And the community is figuring out what it wants to be, you know, in 10 years, in 2030. Uh, but a, a key part of that is uh, 
tourism and destination uh, visitors that have things to do. And so in the Heber Valley, Soldier Hollow uh, is not a sleepy cross-country venue anymore. It is an active source of uh, engagement for the locals who are getting involved in cross-country or biathlon sports, but they're also engaging in a whole variety of uh, winter and summer-themed public activities, corporate group outings, Though that is the overall vision of our foundation to to find unique uses of these Olympic facilities that um, allow for athlete training, but athlete training only occurs in a sliver of the day, and there are additional uses of how the facility can be used, and that is the passion of our wonderful staff that are running these facilities. Uh, I'll use the Olympic Oval as an example. We call it uh, high performance by day and recreation at night. The national long track and short track teams are training first thing in the morning up until uh, three in the afternoon. They then are off the ice and the, uh, the schools are then let out and all of the kids are doing learn to skate, learn to speed skate, learn to play hockey, figure skating club, curling clubs. And that goes till eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night. And then there is public skate that happens in the evening and um uh, adult league hockey game that, that goes till one in the morning and then come 6 a.m. It's back up and running as a high performance center and ending the day on sort of the community uses and recreation program. So that in a nutshell is what we're doing with the Olympic and Paralympic venues under the umbrella of the Legacy Foundation. And then additionally, having you know, corporate groups doing team building by doing a biathlon experience that gets everybody out of the office and doing a little competitive competition and it generates income that helps us subsidize the the running of the sport programs for the kids programs. And it's a it's a a complementary full circle of how we can fund the continued use of the facilities and occasionally hold a world cup or an international competition and have the youth and their parents out there supporting these events because they know about the sport. And, um, you know, we continue to just to see an overwhelming level of support because people have a great memory of the O2 games, but they're seeing what I like to call a living legacy of the games of people and programs actively using in greater numbers today than they ever have. And that is a testament to the hard work everybody did uh, through this effort of uh, making the O2 games successful. Well, Colin, I really appreciate you taking time to give us an explanation of the legacy. I'm glad we had this kind of extended special segment on the legacy of these games and the really important work that you're doing there. So thank you so much. Before we conclude with our final uh, three questions, is there anything else that you've got on your list that we need to cover? Just more of an encouragement for folks to come visit us, whether you're in Utah or from, from outside. Um, um, if you want to see firsthand and engage in the legacy of the O2 games, just come visit one of our facilities, engage in an activity, bring your kids up um, or come to one of our World Cup speed skating events or bobsled events or biathlon events. Um, you can feel the energy and it's especially in times like right now where this pandemic has been, uh, you know, sort of taking over our lives. It is very heartening to see athletes and young kids engaged in winter sport for what the intended purposes of these facilities were. So it's more of a please come and, and very much engage in these facilities. And we are, we're here and we will be in perpetuity. Fantastic. And if I understand correctly, all the facilities are currently open. 
to the public, even during this COVID uh, pandemic with social distancing and all the sanitation and everything that you guys are doing. If people want to learn more about the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation and, uh, you know, want to figure out when they can come out to the venues and whatnot, what's the best way for them to do that? Check out the website, utaholympiclegacy.org is uh, the website address. And there's some wonderful uh, videos that highlight all the things that are happening. And uh, please, anyone, please reach out to me as well. All right. Excellent. Now, to conclude our extended podcast today, Colin, we've got our assignments. The first one is about music. So uh, have you thought about a song? Well, Darren and a few others already mentioned uh, the Bare Naked Ladies, which were one of those popular bands. So I, I, I will avoid that and uh, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, we had at the Utah Olympic Park what was called the Gold Medal Mile running up to the Olympic Park during the games. And we actually had an on-site radio station that Chris Severson came up with this uh, concept of KUOP. And we actually had for the mile-long walk, uh, speakers and an ability to request songs. And one of the ones that um, that I do remember was was one of the regularly requested was uh, uh, I'm a Believer by Smash Mouth. Uh, that was one of the you know, popular songs back in 01, 02. And, uh, uh, that, that had sort of an energetic, uh, you can, you can get up to the top of the hill. And, uh, um, so that, that's, that's the, the, the song I had for you. And then for the restaurant choice, um, my before you get to the, oh, before okay. you get to the restaurant, I just want to say that, uh, we had Christy Nicolay on, she told us about that, uh, gold oh, medal good. mile Yes, and, um, and how some people were actually walking it multiple times to see if they could win prizes. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought that was fantastic. So definitely we'll add smash mouth. I'm a believer to the Spotify playlist. All right. Now I'll let you continue, uh, Colin with the, with the restaurant. Uh, the go-to for us at the, with the Olympic park crew was just across the street at Kimball junction. Uh, it was Szechuan uh, Chinese and they, they were our go-to as much as we love Don Pritchard and food service. You know, we, we, we always had to sneak out and they had a, they, their lunch, uh, which in the, in the day, which I laugh at now because park City's become so much more expensive. Uh, you know, it was like four ninety five for a great lunch and, you know, soup and egg roll. And, and that was the go-to and still is today because it still exists. It just, you know, cost a little more. Yeah. I'm actually publishing Don Pritchard's episode today. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we have plenty of conversations about hot dogs and Wahoos and things like that. So <laughs> everybody had more than their fair share of those, I think. So yes, the Szechuan will definitely put that on our map. We have a map with uh, all of the restaurants that people have nominated. All right. Our final question. What was your favorite memory is that, and it could have been before games, could have been during the games, but, or even after, you know, there isn't one moment I could say, but you know, when, when I think about it, it, the, the morning and end of day venue team meetings for me were one of those things I look forward to. Maybe not everybody uh, look forward to it, but for me, the amount of camaraderie and the feeling of how we all had come together to make this a reality. You know, we would, we would have that morning, you know, pre competition, um, you know, just reminder is everybody good. Here's some of the hot things that we're seeing today. Uh, here's how the weather forecast is going to impact us. Um, and it was, it was just more of a, you know, uh, having your coffee and having a little bit of a, a, a pep, uh, talk before we went out on the day. And then at the end of the day, we had a little bit of a debrief, uh, to, uh, kind of talked about lessons learned and things we were going to improve on. And, um, I think back and, you know, place like the Olympic park had close to 3000 volunteers and staff that made that rea a reality. And, um, not everybody was there at the same time, but the, the, 
the camaraderie, especially of the the management team for me is something I look back on and, you know, it, it, it was a, um, a feeling that, um, is hard to replicate and, uh, is special and one that I'll cherish and, um, just want to, uh, thank everyone that was a part of, of the Park City area teams because it was one of the most special times, certainly in my career. Well, so many people that have been on the podcast have mentioned very similar things that it was really about the camaraderie. It was about the relationships. It was about uh, working as a team, working together. And I, I, I can't think of anything that's, that's more fitting. Thank you, Colin. It's been a real pleasure. And I appreciate you taking time out of your lunch hour <laughs> to, uh, to have this little stroll down memory lane. Now, we learned about how we can find out more information about the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation. But if people want to reconnect with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that on social media or uh, whichever way is, is best? Uh, I'll love to share my email. chilton at uolf.org uh, is the best way to reach. And uh, I am... Uh, um, I would love to hear from folks. And uh, again, even better if you want to pop into the office. Uh, our foundation's based right there at the Olympic Park in Park City. And please stop on by. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Colin. We really appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. Colin, again, thank you. Thank you, Christian. Great to be here. 